What is good, guys and gals, and welcome to the Films and Pixels podcast, episode 28. I am your host, Afif. And yeah, with the World Cup mania now ongoing, the fever pitch is high for this year's World Cup in Doha, Qatar. And for good reason already, we've seen some upset victories, shocking wins, um, disappointing losses, highlight plays, and all that good stuff. But this episode is not really about the World Cup or anything like that. You know, as exciting as I as um, as it may sound. Instead, I do have some good topics at hand that I've placed aside and I do want to talk about for this week's episode. Uh, so I'm going to review a couple of movies, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and The Menu. The second one, like, so good and so interesting, but I'll mention more of that. Uh, plus, two major names now named as uh, CEO of DC Studios, DC Film Studio. While one of the old executives, Walter Hamada, on the way out. I'll talk about him more uh, later on in the episode and his new position, what he'll be up to. Plus, uh, guess who's back as Disney CEO? Yeah, that's right. Not even a year later, and there's, a, there's already a change back to a familiar name that you're probably aware of. I'll talk about that. Uh, plus, what is Mastodon? I'm going to try to explain Mastodon, what it is, how it's making waves recently, especially with the whole Elon Musk Twitter saga. So that'll be pretty good. So I'm looking forward to these topics. A lot to talk about uh, before going forward. If you haven't done so before, please like, comment, subscribe in this to this channel. If you haven't subscribed before, please, it'll it's a huge boost for me. It means a lot. And I do thank you if you have. Please watch previous episodes of this podcast. It'll be great. Leave a comment. It's great for engagement, good for interaction. So that'll be a lot. Also, if you're not someone that's like watching these episodes on YouTube, it said you prefer to listen, that's okay. It's on Spotify and on Rami as well. So, you know, audio streaming platforms, you got the freedom to choose as you like as well. So that'd be good for you. Uh, but yeah, like, um, without further ado, let's get going. How do you move forward without your lead actor? What do you do when your main protagonist is no longer part of the story, as originally scripted. What do you do with your screenplay? How do you alter it and tell a great story and still make all the supporting characters step up into a larger role? This is a situation that everyone from the cast and crew of Black Panther Wakanda Forever has found themselves in. And this movie has allowed them to really mourn and grieve the loss of Chadwick Boseman, whose death from colon cancer just before the end of August 2020, was shocking, and it, it still remains upsetting at that time. It's still unexpected for someone who was 43 years old. And this is exactly what everyone has found themselves in. So a movie like Wakanda Forever is forced to move on without their king, who everyone loved and really respected. Someone like him, not just on screen, but off screen, really resonated the character of T'Challa, and that's exactly what happened. Which is why I think the prologue scene in the movie was really strong and emotional in a way. It allowed the characters to find a way to really just honor him. You know, and like in a sort of Wakanda 
a traditional funeral for T'Challa. But really, this is more about Chadwick Boseman in this scene. And you could tell for the cast members, especially the, like, you, you think that the characters are really mourning him, but it's the actual actors and actresses that really mourn him, miss him dearly, and all that. But this is where, you know, after all that, you know, due to what happened at the end of the first Black Panther film in 2018, when there were promises of sharing their vibranium technology, tension is already seen by the time the actual film opens from the prologue scene. As many nations question Wakanda's pro- initial promise of sharing vibranium. But with Queen Ramonda now back in charge, along with Princess Shuri, tensions are raised. And there are even th- threats of a war between U.S. and Wakanda and what's so and so not and all that. But because of the vibranium revelation and exposure, it does bring another kingdom down under the sea all of a sudden in threat. And this is where characters like Namor becomes the main antagonist of his fictional nation of Talokan, which is kind of interesting. And this is another great villain. Again, I want to say that Ryan Coogler, who made Killmonger, another a great villain from the 2018 film, once again made another compelling villain with Namor in this one, in Wakanda Forever. So I thought that was really great. And I love how, you know, a threat rises between two nations and the technology that they both really need to survive, exceed, and so forth, really puts them in conflict. And there's a lot of pressure just to one of them be hiding, one of them protecting. And it's kind of like a political situation that turns violent in some ways. It was actually great for me to see Namor on the big screen for the first time due to licensing issues that I was in doubt in the past. Just keep in mind when it comes to the origins of his story, I thought it was well explained in the film, but it's different from what was originally written in the comic books. It's just a bit different on purpose, but I'm really fine how it's well decepted in the films as well. I thought it was really good, you know, with uh, the actor really using his Mexican background as if it's like a personal story, personal journey for him. So I thought that was great. And yeah, because of no no longer having the king, this forces uh, Shuri and Okoye who were great supporting characters in the first film to really step up and have larger roles at this one. And even a great arc uh, was given to Queen Ramonda, as I mentioned earlier. She really gave strong emotional performances, especially somewhere in the second act. And I love how she was a great guidance for her daughter Shuri as well in this film. Also, another great character that came back was Nakia, now played by Lupita Nyong'o. She was great and all that. No no offense or anything, but I just wasn't sure initially what her presence would mean in this film. Has someone like her who had a close connection to T'Challa and explained her absence. And more of her absence is revealed just towards the end that I won't spoil. But again, uh, in this movie for Wakanda Forever, a great ally, a great support system, really wise as well. I really liked uh, Lupita Nyong'o's portrayal in this movie. And so this this sort of movie was 
in a in a lot of ways about protecting T'Challa's legacy. And this is, and I thought they did really well here. And once again, like just like before, this film was just visually amazing. Like again, great visual effects despite the behind the scenes drama going on there, but very colorful. Like a lot to see here. Like. I mean, despite the phase four era just being somewhat underwhelming, this was really one of the better films and that era of this era as well, you know? And so with characters like Namor having a reason for vengeance, you know, he's sort of a sympathetic uh, villain this way. And when I think about it, his motives are somewhat similar to a Killmonger. Both of them have vengeance in, in common and they have their own personal reason. So it just makes them understandable. You know, I really like how Shuri and Namor kind of found common ground in, with each other, with him kind of explaining who he is, what his reasons are, just giving more layers to the character himself and how they have similar past. So this is just something that I really like and just try to push their kingdoms, find Wakanda and Talokan for peace, prosperity going forward. This is something that I thought that was great. And despite all the action, it does come to a resolution as well. So who's the character that really drives the plot forward? I would say, well, it's actually Riri Williams who were introduced to this film. She was really more as a plot device because of someone so young and really so intelligent with her device uh, using some kind of technology to like detect vibranium, which really has caused indirectly a war between both nations as well. I do think, in my opinion, her presence in this film was purposely used just as like a precursor to her Disney Plus series, Ironheart, coming next year as well. But yeah, I, like despite everything, I still think the film lifts itself up despite the painful loss. And I really like how not just the beginning and the end, like the film, you know, beautifully pays tribute to Chadwick Boseman. I really like the cinematography as well throughout the action sequences in the second act, and especially when they go on seeing the third act. And, you know, I really respect the, you know, the character growth of someone like Shuri, who has every re reason to go for vengeance, be bloodthirsty and angry. She made the wiser decision. She made herself look as wise, not just her mother, but also her brother as well, and really honored their legacies as well. I just think... She, you know, she did a great job here. And it's great that at the end, there was no like, um, you know, character villain death sort of thing. Sorry if there are minor spoilers, but I just think those moments are just important to mention as well. So I just think like when talking about the phase four era itself for this movie, probably the best or even the second best, I still hold No Way, Ho no Way Home in high regard. But again, like I said before, like phase four MCU era, a bit lackluster, or maybe it's the TV series. That's like a bit of a mixed results. Not all the TV series has been bad, but again, looking at this movie as a whole, like it's just amazing, especially like uh, the cinematography, you know, the emotional depths of the characters. I, I just thought it was really great. It's still worth a second watch. If you, if it's still in cinema, you know, if you're, you know, if you have, if you saw it once, go watch it again. I just think it's still really great. If you haven't seen it before, you know, I really do encourage it. And the funny thing is that it, 
it's already made more money than Black Adam throughout its theatrical run. How ironic is that? But that's still pretty cool nonetheless. So yeah, please go watch Black Panther Wakanda Forever. In a lot of ways, it does pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman very well and very tastefully. It does a tasteful tribute in the end as well to him. The second film that I want to talk about, and trust me, I really like this one. Like, it is so good. And that's the menu. Seriously, the menu was so good. It like it just presented itself as something that was like kind of mysterious and became even more and more fascinating as it went on. The amount of insanity was something just oh my god. It was just so good. I really like this movie, honestly. You know, when when you look at a group of characters like this one who go into a situation that they're invited into to a mysterious place that's like well known, you know, very well advertised as this amazing venue. And then all the people and the hosts are kind of weird in a twisted way. It kind of reminds me of The Island or a movie title similar that came out, I think, a couple of years ago. Kind of like similar plot structure as well. This one is no different. Yeah, for sure. But it's still really amazing. And great cast as well with Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, Ralph Fiennes. So good, especially Ralph Fiennes as the main chef. Oh, my God. That guy, you know, great acting career. But he's, he was just so good in this movie. And I really like Anya Taylor-Joy as well in this role. Unexpectedly, she comes in with her date. But really, as someone who, who like, has no connection to... You know, the restaurant business, not really someone who's like a foodie lover, someone who doesn't care too much about cuisines unexpectedly so much, you know, unlike a lot of the other guests. And she joins along with Nicholas Holt character, Tyler, who, as we see throughout, not exactly the easygoing guy, but who has well-known knowledge of uh, the chef's restaurant known as Julian Slowick, his restaurant called Hawthorne, like somewhere in a, like in a secluded island. You know, it always has like these themes. He has he's well known with like all sorts of menus and all this good stuff. It's, I love the twisted way of how it shows how the menus are presented, which each course you think like it's fine, but it gets more twisted <laughs> as it goes on. And really, like it's kind of like surprising how violent they can get. I mean, seriously, like some of the violent scenes. Oh my god! Like the staff, like it's just kind of weird, like. Any question, anything he just says, they have to say in synchronization, like really like, yes, chef, we love you, chef, and all that stuff. Like, oh my God. Like, it's almost like a military camp for a restaurant. That's how fascinating it is. Like, I, I was in the, sorry, I was in the movie theater just laughing out loud and just really in awe and shock, just like how it was presented, you know, just the courses that was shown, this like, the dial, I'm, I don't know. It's just like, it was just really interesting. Like, it was just insanity throughout. Like, it just got more insane with, especially with like character deaths and injuring people and like attacking people. Like, the show, like, what kind of kitchen staff does that? Like, hurts people, you know? It, it, it showed like the corruption, like, really a corrupted restaurant that just, oh my gosh, so twisted. It, it like, it was just really good at being mysterious, you know what I mean? And, you know, I like how there are characters 
while a bit cliche, but like either like, you know, a group of men from some rich company or some washed out movie actor with a young girlfriend or uh, some old rich couple, a couple of journalists that made them famous that are like food critics, like just kind of seeing how they're all involved in, in some ways or even like what kind of connection they may have with the main chef, you know, and like the conflict between uh, Anya's character, Margot, you know, who's, you know, like more of who she is, is kind of revealed later on and how her presence has created like some tension with this chef, supposedly because she wasn't on the guest list and wasn't supposed to be there and doesn't really like the food. It's not her thing. So it causes a problem, you know, and he, you know, he has a hard time figuring out like what to do with her really. Like if she's not supposed to be there, what is she supposed to do? What, she, what can she do? And so when she incidentally finds out more about him in his past, she uses that to her advantage to escape more catastrophic situations. Because I don't want to spoil what the theme is, but let's just say, like, <laughs> the theme of his menu throughout the movie gets really extreme. So she finds a way to exploit his weakness that made him once a happy cook and just use it to her advantage. I I just thought, like, the way that this character, Margot or Aaron, whatever her, her name is, like, really does a great job of just taking advantage of the situation as she, like, she figures this out later on and, you know, also sees the worst of these people. It's I, I thought that was really cool and interesting, you know? But, like, yeah, I know it's not, like, blockbuster, action-packed, heavy with visual effects and all that stuff. But, you know, this is really the kind of movie, like, if you have nothing to see, you know, you should really go just check it out, you know? I, I, I really do think it's a really good movie for no, for this month, you know, before all the other good stuff comes in December. But seriously, this was so good. Like, the critics are not joking about how good this movie is. Maybe I'm just exaggerating, but it's, it's really excellent. Fun fact, the actor, uh, excuse me, not the actor, um, Director, Michael Malloyd. You're not going to believe this. His his first feature film directing was actually Ali G in the House. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. Ali G in the House was his first movie he directed. A movie from 2002 starring Sasha Baron Cohen. He directed that movie. I'm not even kidding. But yeah, that was just a fun fact for you. But please go check out the menu. It's It's just really good. Seriously. So good. As you may know already, 2022 has been an eventful year for Warner Brothers Discovery with the mergers of Discovery Channel, obviously, and bringing more HBO Max content and all that good stuff. And, you know, releasing films as scheduled and so forth, delaying films if there have been any more delays and all that. So with Black Adam recently released, and that's good, you know, money has been fine. Critics divided on the on the film. But that's not why I'm here. Yes, I'm going to stay on the topic of DC comic books, but the company has announced that they promoted two new CEOs for their DC film studios, James Gunn and Peter Safran. And this is a good step for the company. They're trying to like now have a new 10-year plan for the next slate of DC films, as if we haven't heard enough of like 10-year plans for DC comic book films already. 
so it's not really the first time, but uh, they've been in charge for, since the 1st of November, and both of them are really qualified, I think. They've been looking for someone that's sort of like a Kevin Feige uh, figure, in a way. So it's good that uh, Warner Brothers, you know, has a couple of reliable people that they have a good relationship in charge. Now, obviously, everyone knows Gunn from the Guardians of Galaxy trilogy, and he's still working on it. That's going to come next year. It's nice to know that after everything that's gone on, there's a release date for it. Uh, but also, he did a good job on The Suicide Squad that got a dual release, which not everyone was happy about, both theatrical and streaming release. Not everyone was happy about how it was done, but the film itself, excellent. A Peacemaker series, he did a good job. I mean, I didn't give it much of a chance, but everyone loved it, so I guess I should give it another shot. As for Peter Safran, he actually was one of the producers for Aquaman, and that movie made $1 billion in the box office. Even at that time of release, actually made more money than uh, The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. So you can tell how well the success of that movie really did. You know, And this comes at a time when uh, Warner Brothers uh, Discovery CEO David Zaslav has been trying to making the word of media, uh, making changes with like laying off employees, cutting content from HBO Max. A lot of changes have been made. And I won't, I won't read a statement, but just basically saying how, you know, DC was so entertaining, iconic characters, uh, powerful and, and so forth. And, you know, the talents of James and Peter as world-class creative directors, you know, in charge. And, you know, both had a joint statement telling and they're honored and looking forward to, you know, a typical statement how people are happy, honored, excited to work forward with these companies and all that good stuff. So they're they're just trying to find the right footing with these kinds of movies, especially with this slate of films next year with Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, and the Flash movie for next year, despite the Ezra Miller controversy that seems to be ongoing. And he needs supposedly needs to go see counseling and therapy from his issues and supposedly growing a cult and grooming people. It's just really disturbing stuff that he's been finding himself in. But it's, so at least like finding the right direction. And I think both of them are really good leads as CEOs for this. I mean, like probably the best pick, I mean, at least better than Walter Hamada, who I will talk about in a moment regarding Walter Hamada. But at least it's good that like they'll be working closely with Warner Warner film bosses like Deluca and Pamela Abdi as well. So it's good that like uh at least the deal for now will be like for four years and Gunn will have like creative control. He'll be like executive on like honing the movies and you know Saffron as always like a being producer. So they're both placed in positions that they've excelled at before and they will succeed in again. Uh you know, the remaining question is. Will more DC content really do well this time instead of just mixed results like we've seen, sort of like Birds of Prey, for example. Uh, so trying to find success like their competitor Marvel has done a good job, despite what I think has gone on with Phase 4, but still trying to have better critical and commercial results going forward instead of like DCEU, maybe like DCU with DC Film Studios with Peter Saffron and James Gunn. 
I'm excited to see how this goes. I, I think it'll go well. I like Guns, despite his mistakes in the past and what he said on Twitter. And he's made up for it. And he's paid the consequences for it. But uh, that that aside, you know, this looks like a good hiring. So, um, yeah, it seems like the trajectory will only go up for DC Films. All right, guys and gals, as you may know already, or if you've not, just to catch you up to the news, Walter Hamada is no longer one of the producers, one of the executives from Warner Brothers Discovery. He has moved on and signed a new multi-year executive deal with Paramount. And you know what? Um, despite maybe some tension, maybe some actors that are happy to no longer work with him, he does have a strong track record and has really brought a lot of money to film studios. Like, you know, like I said before, Aquaman making $1.1 billion and the the Conjuring series as a whole making $2 billion at the global box office. So this is really good. However, his new deal does start by the time it's 2023. So it takes effect immediately January 1. So that, that's all really good news. And, you know, he'll be the architect of Paramount's, you know, mainstream horror genre pod. You know, at least with the mission to release like low to mid budget kind of horror films on you know across the year through both theatrical and streaming platforms as well so this is really good and paramount already had uh you know a successful horror film called smile not something for me i wanted to watch personally i don't know how much money it made but it seemed to have done well enough supposedly and there was a strange marketing campaign sending actors to baseball games, smiling and scaring audience members. Just really clever way, but it's just kind of creepy as well. You know, so, so it's a good thing that Smile, which originally was going to be like a Paramount Plus, eventually became like theatrical as well. And it, oh yeah, it actually did make, uh, you know, $210 million with a $100 million budget. So my bad, I should retract the statement. I thought I didn't know the money, but... Now I have with me the information on the box uh, box office uh, number, so it's a good thing, you know. And it's a good thing for Walter Hamada. His other executive producing credits does include uh, some, you know, multi-Oscar winning films, you know, like The Joker from 2019 starring Yaquin Phoenix. Very excellent. That's truly amazing. Excellent film. You know, very interesting as well. Very fascinating. I like that Joker film. Also part of other films like The Batman from earlier this year in March. Black Adam, obviously recently. He stayed in there for the Black Adam film, but also like, you know, The Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman 1984, Shazam. As well, he may have had some involvement with other upcoming films as well. But like, yeah, as I said, starting next year, kind of like the architect of Paramount's horror films. So that would be good to see as well. Um, you know, citing like how success of Smile has encouraged Studio to add more to their portfolio. But prior to being like heading of like DC Studios, he was like executive price, executive vice president of production uh, of production at New Line Cinema when he had other horror films like Stephen King's uh, It, which has seen two chapter films. And has made like seven hundred four million dollars, 
So for someone with strong credentials like him, he's the right man for the job, I think. If you're someone who likes horror films that can be really good, excellent, bring people to cinemas, you know, generate more interest, even generate a lot of talk through social media. I, I, you know, it seems like to me, based on his track record, he's the man for the job. And I think he'll do really well, despite his background of like action-packed blockbuster comic book superhero films as well. He could do well with the horror thriller kind of film genre as well for Paramount. Guys and gals, guess who's back as CEO of Disney? Yeah, that's right. I'm not even kidding. Out is Bob Chapik and back in is Bob Iger. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. After previously leaving the position in like January of this year, I believe, Bob Iger is now back as Disney CEO. And this was a shocking turn of events. This is like really a shakeup. And, you know, no one saw this coming, especially when Bob Iger himself did tell uh, the New York Times in an interview back in January that it would be ridiculous, ridiculous to suggest that he'd come back and help the position again as if he's not going back home. And yet here we are in November 2022, you know, like what, nearly a year out of the job, you know, after helming the position of Disney CEO previously for 15 years. Yeah, in fact, I think like maybe in early 2021, he left and then Bob Chapik was in. But already major shakeups have happened. You know, he's going to talk to employees at a town hall meeting about what to do, what are the plans and so forth. You know, and already he, um, you know, one of the first moves is a result of in the exit of the head of the company's media entertainment distribution division, Mr. Karim Daniel. Now, the thing is, uh, both Karim Daniel and Bob Chapik have a relationship and a close ally of Bob Chapik. So I think that may have played a role into it. It also hasn't helped that for Disney, their stock has plummeted up and down. At one point, it was like, you know, 40% and then like extremely high, like 121%, and then like a major free fall down to 52%. So there's been some revenue losses, some financial losses for Disney as well. You know, it's, it hasn't helped that. Uh, Disney Plus, their main streaming service, hasn't really made them a lot of money. It has been continuing to generate at a loss for them as well for a lot of reasons. So, the, and plus, like some questionable decisions as well when it comes to Bob Chapman being like politically tone deaf or like pretending like everything is fine. Like, so, especially when it comes to some of the decision making that hasn't helped. And he has alienated some creative directors at Disney and kind of like taking away their power and, you know, determining whether like a movie's in theater or in streaming on Disney plus and hasn't, and plus like it kind of alienated some people when, when you, when he botched the company's response to Florida's don't say gay bill, you know, and, um, failed to cultivate Bob Iger's support for the initiative. So at least according to Wall Street Journal. So I wouldn't say toxic culture, but not the kind of culture that has exuded some confidence, some goodwill in some ways as well. Not not a lot of good feelings. I, I guess I if that makes sense, like not not a lot of strong leadership from Bob Chapik, especially when it comes to decision making and sort of the financial losses 
with his films or TV show for shows for Disney. And sort of how he's kind of um, handled the whole COVID-19 pandemic that we've on in like, you know, especially with Chap Bob Chapik's how he's handled the Black Widow film. That you know, that was a really main boiling pot, if you will. Like that was a really a steaming situation between him and Scarlett Johansson, who sued him and Disney for like for our, you know the losses of the film because how it was like got a dual release and she settled for four hundred million dollars and both ScarJo and Disney seem to be in good terms now. So it's, again, like I was saying, like there have been a lot of questionable decision-making moves that have alienated a lot of people he's worked it, whether it's like celebrities or like some creative directors, loss of confidence with the shareholders. And so it's good that Bob Iger is back, but it may be just for two years as far as my, that's just my understanding. It may be for like temporary for two years, until he could find someone who's more of a fit as a new role and the new role of CEO at Disney. But I think this is, will at least put the company in the right direction. He's, he's in there trying to steer Disney in the right direction. Before he stepped down, he agreed to be like a consultant of some, for, of some kind for Disney just to help Chapik or or, or something like that, just to work with Chapik just for a little while. But at least now, you know, it seems like he's a very well-liked person. Bob Iger is known to be really like have high quality, you know, leadership skills as well. Someone who's very well-liked. So I, not, so I think this is a good thing that he's back. You know, it's nice to see Bob Iger back. Now, I don't think he's going to get rid of Disney+. Plus. Let's calm down there. I don't think he'll at all get rid of Disney+. Plus. Come on. It'll still be a booming streaming business for them. It's just, you know, there needs to be a way so that, you know, it's not losing money for them and instead trying to help Disney for their streaming service, trying to make more money as well and see what kind of content other than just, you know, because the original content, you know, it's good, you know, regardless of what you think of like recent releases like Hocus Pocus 2 and whatever. But um, I think uh, with Bob Iger back in the fold, they'll be more than fine. All right, guys and gals, just one more topic for this episode. I want to bring to your attention what may end up becoming a major social media platform uh, called Mastodon. Yeah, Mastodon is a name that's been making news recently with all the changes that's been going on with Twitter and especially throughout the year with the whole Elon Musk Twitter saga. That's really been a fascinating situation to keep an eye on it you know, with employees leaving and celebrities uh, saying they're out on Twitter because of Elon Musk and with his old emphasis on free speech, which while free speech is fine, in some ways there are unintended, there are some consequences. When someone is allowed to freely say something, there are consequences to the words. And sometimes those words, when they're said publicly, you know, can spew a lot of hate. There's crime, anger, you know, everything that's negative that can come out of Twitter. And so when a lot of well-known public figures use Twitter, you know, for, for hate speech or, you know, inspiring crimes of some sort, it does become a concerning platform. And so that's why Jack Dorsey, you know, suspended some well-known accounts. I won't say who, but 
he didn't shy from making sure some well-known people who were on Twitter got their account suspended. And now with Elon Musk, you know, he's back to reactivating them again. But so why, so why does Mastodon figure in this discussion? So let me just explain. It's just like, it's another free software, another free social media software. You know, it has like, uh, you know, it's for running self-hosted network services. It does have microblogging features like Twitter and can publish short posts and they can go to a central feed. You can join like a server of any kind of topic and you can rename and you can remain anonymous as well. It's like a self-governed approach, you know, and giving uh, you decision-making power of how the platform functions and what you can do with the servers. And it's almost like it's almost like uh, a server made for communities, you know, almost like subreddit servers, you know, and they're moderated by, by volunteers and they can create rules and protocols. You know, it's kind of like joining communities while in some ways it sort of reminds me of Discord. Discord encourages people to create communities and join communities with each other about anything, you know, pop culture stuff, gaming, whatever it is, you know. Uh, you know, Mastodon sort of has like some available servers that, you know, for your regional area, local area, you can create them. Sort of that sort of way, rename, remain anonymous, secure. And like, again, another thing, microblogging, you know, sharing and put, and uh, creating kind of like posts similar to what Twitter has. So. I, I think sooner or later, Mastodon will be another major force in the social media platform. And even, who knows, like, will more digital marketing companies use Mastodon? Maybe. I'm going to say maybe. But already more and more of them use Facebook and Instagram and I think less of Twitter. Twitter kind of look more like for Q&As, you know, like for Q&A sessions, you know, just for texting, communicating instead of Facebook and Twitter, uh, excuse me, Facebook and Instagram really encouraging more visuals and can easily be more interactive, especially since they're both meta platforms as well. So, um, you know, I think Mastodon, maybe not now, but because of what's going on with the Elon Musk Twitter saga, it is growing a name of itself. It's been around since 2016. It's just taken a lot of time to really be like a more reliable alternative name and some, you know, for some circles, but, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I, I haven't really used it much. I haven't really used Mastodon personally. I haven't really created accounts, but, um, I think it can work well, you know, since again, it, it encourages communities and it encourages volunteers to create communities, similar concept to discord. It takes a, a mixture of both Twitter and discord. Now that I think about it. So I think, so I really do think this can work well for them. All right, guys and gals, that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Films of Pixels podcast, episode 28. Um, again, I just want to thank everyone from watching and listening from beginning to end. It does mean a lot to me. I really do appreciate it. Even if it's a small number of you, a small group of people, it means a lot. I'm just glad that you've been you know, educated or entertained from the topics of this episode. Thank you. It means a lot. If you haven't subscribed before, please do so. 
I encourage you to subscribe. I encourage comments. Please like this video if you haven't done so. If you have, if you like it, please do so. It means a lot. And really thank you. Thank you. Just thank you for just being there for me. It means a lot. I really do appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful, you know, that I just make an effort slowly but surely it'll work well. Thank you for just watching and listening to the films of Pixels podcast. I'm your host, Afif. Good day and good night.